Welcome to episode three of Turning the Goldfields Green. Today we're presenting live from Main FM in Castlemaine and our topic is Transition Towns and I have Mary Blaine and Ian Lillington here to chat about it. Today is the public holiday for Australia Day or Invasion Day as you may prefer to say and so that's why we're live in the studio because normally I wouldn't be able to make it in. (laughs) So every episode I do an acknowledgement of country and today more than ever I'd like to acknowledge that the studio we're presenting from was built on Aboriginal land never ceded by the Jajarung people and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and also recognise that the Indigenous knowledge of how to care for and coexist with this land is far more extensive than our own, and we have so much to learn. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com Turning the Goldfields Green is a saltgrass production. It is hosted and produced by me, Alison Hanley, in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. All right, before we get started on our topic today, I would like to talk about recycling. I've been having a segment on each episode about how to recycle particular things. And last week I spoke about sneakers. Um, But this week, oh my goodness, it isn't just one particular item I need to talk about. It's everything. How the frick are you supposed to recycle that? All right, so I think most people know that in our shire of Mount Alexander, we have had a recycling crisis recently. The yellow-lidded bins have been going to landfill because our recycler, Veolia, is not able to process the commingled recycling. So we've been told to um, take sorted recycling to the local landfill or just hold on to our recycling until the problem's sorted out. And we have been informed very recently that Veolia will be taking our commingled recycles, so the yellow lidded bins, they'll be taking them again and taking them to their processing centre. So things will be recycled again as of the 17th of February, which is quite recent news. The reason for it was that the Visi plant, which Veolia took most of the cardboard and paper products to, was affected by the bushfires. And so they weren't able to take any more cardboard or paper products from Veolia. And that meant that that sort of made the recycling process too difficult for Veolia to manage. So they've obviously sorted that out somehow. And as of the 17th of Feb, we'll be able to get our recycling picked up again, which is still another couple of weeks, at least two weeks, isn't it? Three weeks, maybe. So... With Mary and Ian in the room, who are actually here to talk about transition towns, I thought we could have a quick chat about recycling first. Mary is a committee member of the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Ian is a permaculture, I want to say guru, but maybe you don't like that word. (laughs) He is a local guru, but he has been teaching permaculture around here for a long time, and many people will have done the course with him. And you've been a fan of the transition towns movement for a long time, and one of the things they do talk about in that is recycling because I know that like it's great to recycle stuff but it's also better not to consume as much in the first place or not to 
rely on recycling as sort of like this get out of jail free card for our consumption habits. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think Mary and I are both on the same page in terms of you should refuse or avoid it in the in the first place. Yeah. And um, there, there, originally there was this mantra of reduce, refuse, recycle, and the, the teacher in me does like the three parts because people remember threes. But then it got extended out to repair and refuse. And so five, you know, repair and refuse, reduce, reuse. But whatever number you have, recycle is at the end. Recycling is the last thing. Mm. It's the last okay option before trashing it. So there's so many ways to not get the problem in the first place or to deal with it better if you have got it. Absolutely. Yes, I think there's a big, um, there's quite a big move at the moment to do this zero waste um, sort of challenge. And I believe that the gold star for that is to have your year's worth of waste in a jar. Mm. <laughs> and, which, <clears throat> and I try really hard and I don't, can't imagine ever being able to reduce all my, get all my waste down to a, a glass jar. But I suppose the whole point is that it's, it's raising awareness and awareness is what's really needed in this area because we just so unthinkingly, mindlessly do stuff out of habit and really it is, it's, it's all about um, pausing, being willing to change our habits but sometimes you just don't know quite how to do that Yeah, and that's where you know, reading, talking to other people, looking around, you can get some good ideas about maybe how you can yeah. reduce your waste. And more and more people are striving for a very reduced waste lifestyle, if not zero waste. And there are a lot of, there's more and more people talking about it online. So you can find blogs and vlogs, mm. <laughs> all sorts of things. And I would underscore what Bill said last week, which is keep the organics out of your other waste. Yeah. Mm. And if, even if you can do nothing else, <clears throat> um, just finding some way it might be a bokashi bin, it might be compost, it mm. might simply be burying it in the garden. Mm. Like small amounts of kitchen waste can be buried about a foot deep and, and they will, the worms will deal with them. So there's, there's, there's a thousand different ways of doing it. Yeah. But if that organic waste doesn't go to the tip or the recycling, that's a huge benefit. Yeah, and your paper waste, a lot of the cardboard and paper can go into your compost as well. Oh, absolutely. So don't, shredder, don't forget that. The shredder is my... You know, wonderful item, best piece of equipment I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. get rid of because everything from paper bags and stuff from the office, everything goes into yeah. the shredder and the worms love it. Mm. That's great. <laughs> and the other thing to keep in mind is that as good as recycling is it, it uses energy and resources mm. and water to reprocess all of these things and make them again into a product. So it is better to refuse or reduce before you recycle, definitely. Mm. So Transition Towns is an idea that's been going around for just over 10 years. Rob Hopkins was a permaculture designer and he set his students a project to create an energy descent action plan in 2004. That is a plan to phase out resilience of fossil fuels in their town, which was Kin Kinsale in Ireland. And two of his students, Louise Rooney and Catherine Dunn, developed the Transition Towns concept. 
Rob Hopkins then moved back to his hometown of Totnes in England in 2006, and he and Naresh Giangrand developed the ideas further into the transitional model. Now, what I like about that, Ian, is that it was a permaculture designer and he was he set his students a challenge and they came up with this brilliant idea which has now gone global and you are a permaculture designer and teacher. What do you feel about that? Yeah, it's great and, and it's one of many uh, ways that permaculture is manifested because permaculture starts off really as ethics and principles mm. and although it's often seen as gardens, permaculture design, if, if you use those principles, it can be applied to anything. Mm. So Rob said to his students, let's apply these principles to our energy uh, system because 10, 15 years ago it was already clear that uh, our fossil fuel energy system was showing a lot of cracks. Even uh, geologists from from big oil companies were saying we're going to run out of oil. Mm. So some sometime a few years ago, we already passed the halfway mark with conventional oil. And uh, reasonably enough, the scientists and the geologists were saying, look, you know, if you used if you've used up half of your fuel tank and you in your own in your halfway to to the destination, you know, you might make it to the destination, but when you get there, you're going to need a new supply. So transition came from that logic, really, is to say things are changing. Uh, we might as well get used to it. Let's engage in, with that change and embrace that change. Mm. Uh, I, I read that that was one of their key, they've got four, six perhaps key sort of concepts embedded in it. And psychology is one of them, which is taking the fossil fuel-free future as an opportunity to thrive mm. rather than a challenge that is too great to hurdle. Mm. Yeah, and uh, the book, is the original book from 2007 or eight, is written in terms of head, heart and hands, yeah. uh, which of course is borrowed somewhat from Steiner. Uh, mm. and, and some people want to add you know, a spiritual dimension in as well, but I'm like a bit like reuse, reduce, recycle. I like, I like the three. Yeah. I like the head, heart, hands. Yeah. Um, and you can weave as much spirituality in whatever way you want into that. But sure, there is a psychology. There's a, the, the way our brains work, the way we feel about stuff is so central to both permaculture and transition mm. because you can have a great plan to grow some veggies or make some compost. But if your brain or some part of your psyche is stopping you getting out of bed or stopping you getting into the garden, then it's not going to happen. I'm really feeling that. I um, <laughs> I personally have the best of intentions to compost and I have started to compost a lot more recently. But even just get out of the garden and, and learn to love it. And, and the more you interact with the garden, I think the more you do love being in it. But it's there is there is definitely some some block in me that's just like I'll be sitting on the couch going I'd love to get out in the garden more looking at my garden and then I don't. <laughs> you need some more rewards. So <laughs> at the moment our fruit trees are just you know, burdened with fruit. There's nothing nothing beats going out in the morning. I think I'll have some blueberries on my breakfast. Oh look, these apples are going really well. Oh, the apricots are ready. Do you think we should pick them now? And then you bring them in, you eat them, and you think, ah, oh, that's what all the blood, sweat and tears is all about. Yeah, that's great. Now, Mary, um, you learnt about Transition Towns a while ago. Yeah. How, did, how did you find out about it and what made you attracted to the idea? Well, I retired from teaching and I was looking for something interesting to do. And what I discovered was um, that the city of Whitehorse, where I lived at the time, 
was running what they called a sustainability ambassador program, which was run by Swinburne. It was free. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I went along and I did the training with that and got the certificate. And uh, But because I did that, it opened up a whole lot of other avenues. And then I started hearing about transition towns. This was about 2007, I think I did that. Then Whitehorse said, oh, would we like to maybe try and make us ourselves a transition town? So I joined the committee that was looking at that. And another thing that was very popular at that time was a thing called Sustainability Street. And I just keep thinking of retro suburbia when I, I think about that. David Holmgren's idea yes, about retro yes. suburbia. Yeah, 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 about, you know, making your street, even just your, your own street, could be the sustainable little hub in your town, even if nobody else is doing much. You could make your own street like that. So that was really, really interesting. And I must say that when I was looking to move from Melbourne, one of the biggest ticked boxes for Castlemaine was that it was a transition town or it was undergoing that sort of um, process. I've been trained by people from Castlemaine and I just thought, hmm, I think that's the place I want to go. So That's interesting. It, it, yes, it involved me moving from Melbourne up to here as well for that so reason. So tra- Transition Towns brought you here. That's great. <laughs> exactly. And since you've been here, you've volunteered and become a committee member at MASG. What, yeah. what do you see happening at MASG and, and around town that uh, reflects the Transition Towns ethos? Well, it's evolved quite a bit. Um, it's a very old sustainability group, actually, in the country. I think originally it was doing quite different things. It was very, very focused on um, energy, um, renewable energy, which is why they were involved in the wind, trying to get a wind farm happening and all those sorts of things. And a solar farm as well, and I believe, at one fa- point. Yeah, yeah, solar farm, all those sorts of things. And then as all things change, everything's in flux. And <laughs> so by the time I joined, those projects had not been viable and suddenly there was this shift in the environment that was uh, because there had been quite an uptake in renewables that wasn't quite the focus but the waste thing came in as the big a really big focus and I think since in the time that I've been at MASC it's been mostly about waste and that includes the biodigester which is the project that being negotiated with Don and Coliban Water and the council uh, which would be a massive um waste project mm. um and it's also it, an energy project though too isn't and it? it yes so it yes ticks, ticks two boxes yeah absolutely it's great and it's part of that closed loop idea as yeah. well for don especially so what it is is people can put organic products into it and it creates energy and compost them at the same time and we get a product at the other end that can go back out onto farmland yes it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really nice concept actually it's very good and and it's um hopefully enable a big company like don which is such a big employer in the town, to stay viable mm. and to keep doing what it does. And, and reduce their energy bill yeah. and their heating bill. and Particularly heat. They use a lot of heat in the process. And I'm imagining, I'm not sure, I might be wrong, but I'm imagining Don doesn't currently purchase 100% green power. No. And their up. energy bill is astounding. Yeah. As a householder, you can't believe the amount they pay yeah. for their energy to run that plant. So yeah. anything that would help them, mm. <laughs> would help us exactly. as well. Yeah. What's good about these stories is the long-term nature of things because uh, the sustainability group, when I was more involved in 2008, did a project that involved um, Don, as, which was Western Foods then, I think, and they tried to link up uh, the hospital 
and the foundry to to make a precinct where energy and resources were shared. And uh, MASG got CSIRO involved in a study. And there was some early but significant work done on the, the technologies that were involved with that. And including, for example, the first time that we were, as the public, able to see power core data and we could actually see what energy was being used by Castlemaine as a whole town. And those sorts of statistics and things that accountants and and scientists can help us with are so important because before then we were saying, well, let's put more solar panels on the roofs. This was before virtually anyone had solar on their own roofs, but no one really knew what, what the scale of our energy use was as a town. And it was actually possible to find that out and it was possible to see that, as you'd expect, uh, some of the big machines are switched on at night time because if the foundry or, the, or Don switched on something big in the daytime, they could uh, sort of trip the whole town, blow yeah. the system. Mm. Uh, so there, there was a lot of common sense things in place, and, and it, but it was good for that to be researched. And also places like the hospital and Don have refrigeration and air conditioning running 24-7. Mm. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is all going to feed into this sort of data. Oh, we've got a lot more now. Is um, going to feed into the zero net emissions um, mm. project that the council and MASG and lots mm. of other people are embarking on. Mm. Um, also, just go back to the waste um, since I've been with MASG, is caught, we've sweated some of the small stuff as well, like... You know, the boomerang bags, we've auspiced a lot of local groups that have got great ideas and terrific teams that just run with the idea. And we've the Repair just, Cafe. Repair Cafe. And, of course, originally we did get all the recycling of the light bulbs and the... Batteries uh, and... Yeah, mm. it, all those things, batteries and all that was a MASG initiative. And, of course, it's been... Which is great. And this is very transition town. It's then just got a life of its own and it's been run by other people and it's mm. taken over, which is what it is because the one thing about transition is it's a, it's a bottom-up, not a top-down mm. process, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And a, a Castle Mine in, interests me. I mean, it, you know, it, it drew me a, a bit like Mary was saying. I, I was first living here in the 90s, then I went away, but I was drawn back to Castle Mine. I think it's a place where people consistently experiment and test things out and a lot of those things do work and they get taken up both here and and elsewhere and I'm, I'm curious what makes it that kind of place because it's also sometimes frustrating because a lot of people here want to move on to the next new thing all the time before the other uh, things actually been finished yeah yeah and I I'm to some extent I'm one of those people and it's great that we have those people but mm. I think I think it's really important to set Castle Main in the global context mm. because uh, Totnes in the south of England is a similar size it's got a similar history of the last couple of hundred years where it had an agricultural history then it had an industrial Industrial history, both agriculture and industry faded away. Mm. Um, both both places. I mean, I, I go back to southwest of England, and uh, you know, it, three four hundred years ago, the the land was very the living was very rural, but that land was gradually taken away and enclosed by a few wealthy people. You know, so the, our history and what Rob Hopkins writes about this, what's what's not so far back in our genetics is this desire to somehow connect with the land. And it actually, I think that applies in any, to anyone anywhere in the world. 
And when I teach permaculture in big cities, and one of the great things that is driving people there is to somehow have some connection with the land, even if you're living in a concrete box. Absolutely. So there are towns in North America, there are towns in Europe, there are towns, uh, especially in these uh, you know more westernized OECD countries, where there are these hot houses or experimental zones mm. and the 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 global lives conference that was here almost five years ago rob hopkins spoke to that by by uh, skype and he listed sort of 12 or maybe 20 factors that make a transition town mm. or he listed the ones that Totnes were doing a castle main was also doing about 75 percent of those yeah, right. and we back in 2008 we did have a transition group here but we never got to register on the global uh, list of transition towns. Even though we're doing much uh, of the things. We're, we're doing much of it. So we, can, we still could. We could still register. The, the, the form is there on the web. You just have to submit some information. Maybe we should. Yeah. Maybe as a result of today, some people would like to do that. I, I'd love it if we did. So can you tell me a little bit about what the things are that he was um, recognising that would make a transition town? And also maybe from there you could talk about how towns like Newstead perhaps or uh, with their renewable Newstead movement or Castlemaine are achieving those goals? In a principle level it's about dispersed systems not centralised systems. So with, with our energy, our food, our housing, our community systems uh, the, the more they're dispersed and localised the better. And a uh, hundred years ago, a lot of Australian country towns worked in a, a really much more autonomous way. So a, a town would have its water supply sorted out locally. It would have some of its food supply sorted out locally. Its health care would mostly be organised locally. I'm not saying that was perfect, but that there is actually now a big interest in going back to those systems. So, for example, um, the, the electricity supply system, it no longer wants to s- send power from Gippsland to, to the Mallee. Uh, when there's all this sun shining in the Mallee, so why, or or even to Newstead, so any town like Newstead or Castlemaine or uh, Witchyproof can easily generate its own electricity locally. And I think this this is a really key point to my mind about what's happening politically around climate change and the climate emergency, is that too few people, like the mining magnates, have had too much power over this system which is powering the whole of Australia. And they don't want to let go of it. And they're threatened by the idea of local areas having control of their own energy sources, like Mm. Hepburn with their wind turbines is a community-owned electricity source. And our world is so reliant on electricity now. It would be very difficult to conceive of going without it. Mm. Um, But And there's no need to go without it. We just need to organise it in a different way. But this idea of localising the power source and and localising ownership Mm. is is, I think, a really key part of what's happening in Australia, especially around Adani and coal and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So the, that dispersed model was central to transition thinking when it first came around, uh, it was, and it was building on not just permaculture initiatives but a whole bunch of other ex- experiments, really, that were being done since the 1970s. The 19 19- 70s and we had the first great oil crisis 1973 when petrol prices went up by four times almost overnight now imagine what fuss it'd be now if petrol price doubled let alone goes up four times 
but so you can you can imagine the kind of shakeup that was to a country's economy in Australia or America, which had become since the war, the second war, had become totally uh, accepting of of fuel not being an issue. So it's we've now had fifty years of sort of getting to think about and adapt to fuel not being cheap and easy. But uh, it seems like humans and possibly some parts of the world worse than others, we do seem to be a bit slow to, yeah. to face the realities and of the need to make a transition. It's interesting to me. I've been driving for around 20 years and in that time, I believe, I feel like the fuel prices have roughly doubled. It used to be like 60 cents or 70 cents mm-hmm. a litre. And when it hit the $1 mark, everyone was panicking. And, but it hasn't stopped us driving we all just adjust our budgets and our habits and mm. we still drive. Mm. So, uh, and, once it's, and it's actually been remarkably stable these last 10 years because around 2008 there was a bit of an oil crisis. Uh, that was when fuel went from about a dollar to a dollar fifty, And it's actually now for 10 years it's stayed, never really gone beyond a dollar fifty. But that, that will change. But it's, it's actually a tribute in, to the big system. It shows how competent the big system is at drip feeding us this uh, feeling that everything is okay mm. but when but when you look behind the scenes or when you look under the water there is there's more and more chaos going on to keep to keep change uh, in our economy at a what's considered an, an acceptable sort of drip feed of change yeah. and protecting us from the from the bigger changes that and that and you know this this last six to twelve months has been a big shake-up for people of course and I think it brings us back to the psychology of things mm. because the, you know, not just the fires, but even before the big summer of fires, then, you know, the, the, uh, the, the things about climate change on, uh, in the media, the, the um, in- increased visibility of, of street level protests, especially the through student the, protests. Yeah. yeah. So all of those things are getting more people. Uh, there's, there's a, an awakening or a, or a reawakening for some of us older mm. folks about. Uh, just how things do need to be addressed more more actively. And it's this whole notion of change. You know, we're surrounded by change, but we humans just seem to like to think we like to kid ourselves that things are stable, <laughs> but they're in constant flux. And some things are slow, so we get used to them, and we don't like sudden changes and things like that. But I've been recently reading some kind of interesting philosophy and talking about the blockers to change, especially uh, people in power. But it seems to be the thought amongst many people, philosophers particularly, that this whole notion of rational discourse, it just doesn't work. It can work once you get people on side, then they will look at the facts and the science and all that sort of thing and then that helps them to make adjustments to their thinking. But it seems that what seems to work the best and this certainly fits in with all we've been talking about is what they call relational discourse so it's developing relationships with people finding a connection working from that base to get change rather than why don't you believe the science you know the science is here why can't you believe it and why don't you act on it find another way in and relational um, discourse seems to be the way that seems to prove uh, to be a bit more successful in getting people to change mm. attitudes. I think that's a really important point because in this world of internet arguing, oh. we see so often people just hammering their point 
and it just actually raises people's hackles. They don't want, they're not going to respond well to being told that they're a bad person. So there's, there's got to be a better way of changing people's minds. And I do know that a lot of people, like no matter how much you present them, the solid evidence of your argument, if they're feeling attacked, they're just going to shut down. They're not going to take it in and they're going to feel like you're biased one way or another. So I just think, I think that's a really important point in terms of how we manage. And if we're talking about transitioning away from oil, our reliance on fossil fuels and changing so much of what is now habitual human behavior. We've been taught it by our parents. Even our grandparents had these things. So it feels embedded in our culture, but cultures have changed. I mean, a hundred years ago, we didn't have washing machines or, you know, (laughs) a whole bunch of things, (laughs) a whole bunch of things. (laughs) Most people didn't even have electric. I mean, not electric cars. I'd love it if everyone had electric cars. Most people didn't have cars a hundred years ago. So, I think change we've seen when I think about my grandmother who was born in 1914 and she lived to just before anyway she lived to 92 <laughs> I can't do that maths right now she she saw a tremendous change she lived through two world wars the great depression the introduction of all of these um, convenience technologies so things that made our lives safer and easier and we're not saying that we want to lose all of those conveniences but it's an interesting idea that she saw that much change. We can see that much change as well. And we are seeing that much change. We're seeing renewable energies come in and hopefully electric vehicles will come in. And Transition Towns is all about helping people through that, isn't it? Yeah, and Transition puts a lot of focus on storytelling, on including uh, imagining you're in the future and telling the story of how you've got there. Because yeah. it's so important that we're not coming from this place of fear. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's easy for, and I, in, I include myself, to get wrapped up in, in feeling frightened about the current situation. But we don't need to give up a whole bunch of things, we, but we do need to do things quite differently to get the, the comfortable, satisfying life that all of us are interested in. Mm-hmm. And that art and culture and storytelling has been part of Transition's approach to help people uh, engage with this so that it, this is a different way, I suppose, of saying what Mary was saying, that uh, just pre- presenting the simple, direct sort of science or logic of things isn't the way for everyone to handle this change. For me, until around the turn of this century, until about 20 years ago, the word alternative was, was a put-down. A slur. Uh, but now, for the last 10 to 20 years, the alternatives are proven and tested and we're, we're proving and testing them all the time, whether it's a Hepburn wind or, or Newstead showing how you can uh, easily enough sort of step off the main grid uh, and actually every day still go and switch on the, the light switch or switch on the kettle and not, not experience any different in your own home. If you are interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. I am talking to Ian Lillington and Mary Blaine about the ideas involved with Transition Towns, which was developed um, just over 10 years ago. And already it seems that the ideas have evolved, which I think is suitable for this time that we're living through which is a time of rapid change and we have to have rapid change to come out of this without catastrophic climate change 
in the near future. So, Ian, what are some of the things that you've been thinking about in terms of our local region and how transition towns can evolve? You've mentioned the word rapid there and the the transition people in Britain have just relaunched with the phrase rapid transition. Uh, So great minds are thinking alike. (laughs) <laughs> uh, in a general level, uh, as we've said, transitions about rethinking our approaches and permaculture is about redesigning our approaches. So they go hand in hand. What that means locally is we've already got a lot of good initiatives. I'd love to see more people involved because one of my concerns as a community worker over years is that energy tends to flow from one place to another we've got a limited number of people who will be active at any one time so uh, about 12 years ago we had something called permablitz where you could have your back garden made over and get some veggies planted i had one of them (laughs) and but uh, then along came uh, growing abundance and they did great work with harvesting food and processing it and so on but a lot of the permablitz people became growing abundance people and permablitz died off and growing abundance died up then uh oh grew up (laughs) yes that's right so but then you know then another related project comes along and although new, new people and new faces and new energy comes in and we've seen a steady increase for example in community gardens and in people being out there in doing environmental related work I'm interested in ways that we can involve more people because there really is something for everyone yeah. if you're if you're energy focused there is there's the biodigestion or the solar if you're agriculture focused there's a whole bunch of ways to grow food sell food if you're into sh- uh, retailing and, and great shopping there's all kinds of ways to make those products available so I think that we need to keep on talking with each other about what is already going on, including how a lot of businesses are, are based entirely on that. So the, 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 the workspace we're in now, you know, there's dozens of businesses here and there's other, these other shared workspaces. So in context, Main FM is located in the old hospital in Castlemaine and it's been taken over by a group called Workspace and they facilitate small enterprises and give them the chance to have some rooms at a low cost to build up their business. Um, I think there's a time limit on that, but it's it's a really good initiative. And there are, as you said, multiple sort of co-working facilitated sort of spaces around Castlemaine mm-hmm. that also share resources, I think, which is one of the key factors. So there might be computer hubs where people can share things and they don't no one has people don't have to have a printer each and a computer each and internet each they can use these workspaces and and lessen some of those impacts and so there is no one starting point but uh there are many and that's a good thing but the mount alexander sustainability group is a great starting point it's it's a public organization it's a membership organization it does its own projects and it also points you to other related organizations and activities and I know soon you're going to cover more of the upcoming conference for the end of March which is the local lives global matters and um, that really that put Castlemaine on the international map in 2015 when that conference last happened here and I believe that that conference was the uh, launching point for the group that you've been involved in for some years now called Localising Lianganook. That mm. came out of that conference, didn't it? Yes, yeah. The concept of localising is another word for transition, really. Mm. The, the word transition doesn't appeal to some people. It's a bit too general or it's it's used in healthcare or it's used in education. Uh, localising was an attempt to make it more clear about what those activities are. What that are. means, what that transition yeah, is yeah. towards, because yeah. a transition could be towards anything, really. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'd come back to what I was saying earlier, that uh, 
Castlemaine is an experimental town. Uh, well, then the Shire is an experimental area. People come here to test things out. Uh, there's a lot going on. It's not always obvious, but I really encourage people to find out more about what is going on and, and get involved and contribute in some way. Mm. It's, a, it's very much a can-do town. It's something that I really noticed when we first moved up here, how very easy it was to form friendship groups, to join things, whether it's things like youth, U3A, which is an enormous group providing fantastic service to all sorts of people. Um, there is an atmosphere that no idea is that crazy and there's probably someone who will come along and listen to it or listen to you. And it's it's very nurturing in many ways, that aspect, because you, you, you don't sit with your lip buttoned up because you think you've got this crazy idea and no one will be interested. And it doesn't have to be crazy, but people are very willing and open, I find, in Castlemaine. And maybe that's something... Maybe it's developed over many years, I don't know, or whether it's what it is, what's in the water here, but it's certainly something that makes it easier to get involved and have a go at something. The, the, the blocks aren't there, you know, the blockages aren't there in the same way that they might be in some other places. I've been in community houses in Melbourne suburbs and things like that, and they offer really good services and all sorts of things like that but nothing very exciting really <laughs> happens and you don't get that feeling here at all. Yep. So, so Ian, you've had some thoughts about what, because I know the Transition Towns model has changed its name to accommodate the idea that it can move into any size human environment and, and what were your thoughts about what, what it would take for, like the ideas in Newstead may not apply to Castlemaine because the town's ten times bigger? I think that... A sense of scale or proportion is really important. How you meet your basic needs in a town of, say, 1,000 people is different to what happens with 10,000. In very simplistic terms, Newstead is about 1,000 people. If you combine Campbell's Creek, Chewton and Castlemaine, it's about 10,000 people, so it happens to be 10 times bigger. Bendigo is a little bit more than 10 times bigger again. And if you, know, you imagine yourself on the main street of Newstead or the main street of Castlemaine or the middle of Bendigo, you're in very different environments. But each of those needs these sustainability responses. Some can, and they are being directed by government or they're being directed by, by financial incentives. And that's all fine. But how, how we respond as a community, is, it's really up to you to work out what, what you can do with your, with your community. And starting at the street level is an excellent thing to do. Uh, getting to know your neighbours is, is one, of the, uh, one of the basics of this. You, you, know, you won't all be great mates with all of your neighbours, but at least knowing who they are, what their names are, makes life more pleasant. And in terms of like, response to a fire or other emergency, it also makes life safer. So, you know, Mary mentioned before, transition is um, starting at the grassroots and, and st starting in your local neighbourhood and then working out how that relates to, you know, the facilities. We've got great facilities. We have underused community centres. Mm -hmm. oh, don't misunderstand me. There's, there's amazing community work going on. But over the decades, uh, councils and governments have built us some great community facilities. The community centre near me is probably standing empty about 90% of the time. The 10% it's used is wonderful, but what about the other 90%? You know, there, there's massive opportunities we have here. And what do you see, this is to either of you, 
What do you see needs to happen still in this region, say in Castlemaine? What needs to happen for us to fully transition? That's a big question. I mean, there is the notion of drawdown, which is um, a hub that could be created here. We've spoken about that on the show before okay. in the first episode. Dean explained the concepts of the drawdown hub. There's a list of 100 just in that book and more emerging all the time of ideas that can draw carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's not just about reducing fuels, and we desperately need to do that, but we also can draw carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, so that's uh, something that Castlemaine could get a hold of and do something about. It's almost (laughs) limitless, and I think my feeling is because of the anxiety and the worry that people have had recently and how things have come to a real head. With the fires. Yeah, that lots more things are going to suddenly come up and be doable. Because people will be seeking ways to get involved and make a difference. Yeah, I think there's a momentum there and it covers everything from, oh gosh, you know, our our economy here as well as the the built environment, transport. Transport, I think transport's something that's going to really have to lift in Castlemaine in terms of what we offer for electric car vehicles, for better bike lanes and things like that. There's just so much that can be done and we're small enough to be able to do it. I also think we need to assemble physically more often. I think the the old idea of a town assembly is important. Uh, the Sustainable Living Festival coming up in Melbourne soon is having four pu- public assemblies on four different themes. And this is about getting out of the social media sphere, getting away from your screen, because some of those people who seem nasty online are probably actually quite nice. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and the, the, in the old days, we, we did physically come together more, and I'm sure we're going to see more of that. And, and I think when you present a, a view that someone else disagrees with, if you're actually face-to-face with mm, a warm, breathing mm, human being, you present it differently, you use mm, different words. Mm. Mount Alexander Shire did an excellent community consultation in 2007-2008, which led to a plan called MAP 2020, which was a, a plan for now, where we are. Uh, and it was, they, it was excellent in the sense that the consultants... Um, brought together a, a really good cross-section of people. Mm. So there, there were very uh, different views around the tables where we sat. Uh, the sad thing about that was we came up with about 120 great ideas and there was almost no way to, uh, to enact most of those ideas. So issues like how Forest Street in the middle of Castlemaine has redeveloped, issues about the swimming pool, issues about recreational facilities, which came along as a major problem a few years later, they were already being canvassed because folk around town know those things. We know those are issues. And I, I think if we sat together around tables in the town hall more often and discussed that as a kind of a public assembly, a town assembly, we might make some better progress. As it is, um, things tend to come up as a problem and then someone has to scramble to solve the problem. I felt encouraged by the recent day. It was a day, it was a long day, when the council was debating whether they would declare this shire a climate emergency. Mm. And I thought the very wide number of presentations Mm. that were made, that the councillors sat very dutifully and I think very conscientiously through a lot of presentations before they made their decision. So there was no one in town who really could honestly say, and you could make written submissions as well, there was really no one who could say, oh, no one asked me. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't get... No one listened to me, no one. 
And I I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, I agree with that. I think having town meetings is a great idea and if they were well facilitated, that would be brilliant. What else do you think could really shift things around here? Well, since the 90s, I've been talking to people around here about the, the town getting more clearly sustainable in certain aspects. So, for example, uh, our water supply still is a problem in, in terms of we're, we're part of a big system. There's a requirement for that, that water to meet certain standards, which means a whole bunch of chlorines pumped into it. We could do better with our local water system. In the late 2000s, when we actually did have a serious drought, we, we had a small group called uh, Water is Life, Mount Alexander, which spells Wilma. So the Wilma group actually met with Coliban. We talked about how um, more water could be recycled locally so that irrigation was coming from sort of secondary water and that more rainwater could be caught for our primary needs. Mm. But technically it can be done. It needs money spending. And a lot of money is being spent, but the big system spends our money in a way that doesn't actually make us more resilient. So there are ways that we can still, there's an openness to have those conversations still. Mm. At a more practical level, things like the the permaculture courses that we put on and the community house puts on a whole bunch of practical workshops, U3A puts on workshops, where individuals can learn how to say have the better fruit in on in their gardens how to prepare for fruit fly how to have your own water system set up so that you can uh, use mains water when you need to and you can use rainwater when you need to you can have both systems on in your own garden and so, even using gray water perhaps safely yeah, yeah, those sort of that's right things. so the, those practical things are available uh community house castle main community house is stepping up year year by year uh, you know since it's got its new home it's got that you know great great sort of per- sense of permanence it's got a community garden at the back uh, it's offering a wider range of courses it's got a community kitchen which is getting used more often to put to p- process the food that's being grown locally there are all these seedlings I, I see our community as having a lot of seedlings and and people need to continue to to nurture those those seedlings whether it's in the area of food or water or health or energy or transport and a whole Mm. bunch of other things also i went to a short workshop back in september where a local indigenous man had been to a major conference on on indigenous burning methods and um, those conferences have generally been run in northern australia and the next one this year is back up in north queensland but the one last year was on the river murray or the Mm. dongola they are starting to work even with local cfas on uh, doing cool burning uh, like genuinely cool burning which doesn't burn off all the nutrients and and kill things it actually simply increases the fire protection and creates Uh, biochar i understand mm, which is really beneficial it done done at the right time with it with an and it actually comes down to people it needs a lot of people on the ground who know what they're doing mm. so there are there are quite sophisticated ways of managing our bush it's it includes a lot of indigenous knowledge it's happening locally we're going to hear more of it dipping the toe in the water is not quite the right analogy <laughs> but, but last last year was just the beginnings yeah. with with the national conference here and with a lot of people being inspired by that over and over there are these examples of things going on that most of us don't know all about all of them 
but keeping on sharing about these things, focusing on the solutions mm. is... And I think that's the benefit of the grassroots sort of movement is that you're not relying on approval from the government or funding or any of that. You're just making it happen in your small town. And if your small town happens to be able to give that blueprint of what was successful for, to you to another town, then it spreads mm. and it amplifies. And we've seen that in so many different areas. Now we've run out of time, so we'll have to wrap up. Thanks so much, Ian and Mary, for joining me and talking about transition towns. Thank, Thank you, you, Ali. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, please email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Please be aware that if you do email us, we may read your email on the show and we may identify you by first name. If you do not want this, please say so in your email. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au.